This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You've heard of primary care, secondary care and tertiary care. But what comes before all that? Welcome back to Triple R, provider of primordial well-being care, delivered to your inner ears to settle your inner fears. And while Prime Ministers come and go, you can be sure of one thing. This time, every week, or any time at all, by Radio On Demand, we'll be here for your therapy session. And the only co-payments are full, passionate, concession, business, band, artist or DJ. So, whatever your favourite ism is whether it's sadism, masochism, or my favourite to represent Australia at uh, Eurovision, tism, uh, the doctors will see you now. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Welcome to Radiotherapy, Triple R's uh, ridiculous pseudo-medical, actual medical, kind of pretend medical show, our ward round of the week, uh, and uh, we have a cracker of a show today. We've got uh, a old favourites, new favourites, and, uh, and comebacks and goodbyes uh, on our panel today. First of all, we have, uh, we have Dr Mellis. He's the neuroplastic surgeon, as I like to call him. He's uh, here to massage your amygdala uh, via radio frequency techniques. Oh, amygdala massage. I love that as the primordial ultimate sensory motor integration, massaging the amygdala. It's got a sort of a ring to it. Title for a book? I think so. And to uh, Miss Medic, our local Andor general practitioner, here for so much more than smears and tears. She's here to quell your fears. Oh, isn't that... That's just such the classic for the female GP, tears and smears. Do you know what? That, neither of those things bother me. I'm happy to see all patients with tears and needing smears. So I'm going to take it as a compliment. Like I said, here for so much more. And in huge news... Uh, uh, our uh, resident bioethicist is resident again. Uh, that's uh, bioethicist and psychologist, really. She's, uh, you know, uh, doubly certified, um, <laughs> recommended as well, perhaps. Uh, we're talking about Dr. Autonomy, of course. Welcome back. Thanks, guys. It's so wonderful to be back. You haven't changed a bit. <laughs> Either of you, Dr. Autonomy, or have you? <laughs> Mm. A few too many donuts, maybe, over in America. A few too many donuts, indeed. <laughs> All right. Um, I was going to say, gonna... by the way, yeah. listeners, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, not, it's not standard practice to just bully each other about yeah. our appearances. Yes. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I am indeed about six and a half months pregnant. Very exciting Ooh. stuff. <laughs> New little um, baby, baby ready autonomy. to subscribe. Yeah, baby autonomy on the way. Baby autonomy. Um, Aren't you either autonomous or not autonomous? Can you be kind of semi-autonomous? I don't think so. I think it's all or nothing, isn't it? I don't know. You're the bioethicist. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say... Maybe autonomy is your autonomy right at the moment, isn't it? Is my autonomy? Yeah, because you're making these decisions on the autonomous... You're one being that is autonomous at the moment... Is that right? Straight into parental rights and, and, you know, rights of unborn children. Wow, guys. 
Yeah, I'll, right. just, I'll drop that one. I think it's getting too complex for this time of the morning. <laughs> yeah, very, very highbrow for Sunday morning. So, uh, Malice, um, let's, uh, what, what's caught your fancy this week, wherever, you, wherever it is in your body that a fancy well, is? It's near the amygdala, of course. Got I'll it. just massage it out. But I think on a public uh, scale, the politics of this last week has been phenomenal. What's happened? Uh, <laughs> something happened. <laughs> well, if, in case you didn't know, we're in the first week of good government. Uh, up till I don't know what we were in la- up till last week before the supposed spill, but the, which didn't happen. But we are now uh, in a different world, and this is called good government, and it's all because of uh, a lot of discontent, uh, basically around a storm and teacup called a captain's call, <laughs> and it all resulted in into a huge, huge storm last week. And I just then looked at the background of what could have been the cause of such an incredible, credible uh, guff of a captain's call and wonder if we could find a link between uh, the previous Prime Minister and the current Prime Minister. One's obviously a lady, one's a gentleman, one's Labour, one's Liberal, and yet they've got a very common factor in their childhood. Sorry, I suspect that both would object... Uh, sorry, one would accept, but we would reject the characterisation of the current Prime Minister as a gentleman. Oh, and, uh, all right. And, uh, and I wonder if the previous Prime Minister might reject the characterisation of herself as a lady. Well, I'm talking 1950s. OK. Uh, and the reason for that is that's where the issue that I think they share in common... They, in case we didn't know, both 10-pound poms which is an Australian colloquialism for the people who came out from England after the war and assisted passage. And the question arises, obviously, is that just historical or, given, you know, about the amygdala oh, and uh, trauma and, ma- and, and uh, passages from overseas and acculturation and migrants and refugees and so on, is it possible that there's something that, obviously, the extremely high achiever lady and gentleman of the 50s, but they could couldn't quite translate that sort of passion and win over the contemporary current world. Is part of them really stuck in an old world? In which case it would make perfect sense where they're stuck and why they're stuck. And the captain calls make perfect sense. I'll give my daddy a knighthood. <laughs> wow, my my cup runneth my cup runneth over. Uh, not so much a spill. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, every, everyone you know can take that to bed tonight. Um, and uh, Miss Medic, uh, what, what have you seen this week that's, uh, that's captured your imagination? Well, I, I was going to talk a little bit about the measles outbreak in Disneyland. So this Mickey, is, Mickey Mouse has measles, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, well, he could. Well, this is the he very well could because we know that back in uh, over the Christmas period, there seems to have been somebody who travelled to Disneyland, possibly from overseas. They're not sure about the initial case, but somebody developed measles shortly after a visit to Disneyland, and we've now seen over 100 people have now developed measles as a result of contact from that initial case. So this is really, I think, very interesting, and the reason why I think it's interesting is because it demonstrates a lot about measles that I think has been sort of under the radar for some time and it demonstrates a lot about vaccinations and what happens when people don't vaccinate. So 
Back in about, I think, in the year 2000, the United States declared that they were they had eradicated measles from the country. So that's where they were back in 2000. And now we've seen the biggest outbreak in years um, occurring just from this one case. So I think there's some really important lessons out of this. And um, I think, number one, it shows that measles is highly transmissible. And the problem with measles is it's a very good virus in that you can not have symptoms and still be contagious. So in the days leading up to your getting the illness yourself. So it, it, it shows just what can happen if people are not vaccinated, that we can get these large outbreaks very rapidly. So measles, measles is absolutely a, it's a brilliant virus. Uh, so speaking as speaking as someone who quite enjoys viruses, bacteria, and fungi, yeah, not, um, not the adjectives that I think the rest of the public uh, would be using. It's a good virus. It's a brilliant virus. So, so, so if you, if you were going to design a virus, this is it. It's uh, it, it, like you say, you can pass it on before you've got symptoms and. And people do, you know, or before you've got symptoms certainly that are recognisable as measles. This is this is the ultimate uh, uh, condition where you pass it on to everyone in the waiting room, uh, and um, and. So when they said that measles was eradicated in the year 2000, it seems a ridiculous statement to make given that we've seen cases now. Uh, what, they, what, the, the, what that statement is is that there was no native continuing rolling measles year in, year out there. So when we talk about outbreaks, we're talking about... Uh, we're talking about someone getting a virus and passing it on to at least one person, usually. And when we're talking about epidemics, we're talking about more than one person. So a rolling kind of transmission like that. And that hasn't existed in a country like the US for a very long time. And in fact, vaccination, which was introduced there in 1963 for measles, dramatically cut cases by 99% at least. And so this is one of those incredible areas in medicine where we've got an answer. We actually do have an answer. You know, there are so many things in medicine. We talk about it every week where we don't have answers, and in this in this example, we've got an answer. Yeah, and look, I think what this really shows is that. Um so if we talk about that we need 95% coverage for vaccinations to, to have herd immunity, that is that there is a really low level of the disease in, in the community, most people are immune. The problem with that, and this is what's demonstrated by this outbreak in the United States, is that say if we've got... So one in 20 people are not vaccinated. That doesn't, that doesn't happen on a... Um, how can I explain this? It's not. It's not. Yeah, it's not completely randomised. So that in a population, there's just one person in every twenty. What we see is these clusters of people are not immunised, and that's how an outbreak can occur. So if someone's unimmunised, they live in a community where these they're not immunised, and we see these large outbreaks. So that's why we really need to think about going for a hundred percent coverage with our immunisation. Can I ask, I think that's a fascinating concept, this cluster of people who are not, not immunised. Is this um, an active, informed decision that people are now making to not immunise their kids or are there clusters of people who haven't been educated and don't know that that's what should be happening? I mean, why are these clusters occurring? You know, and I'm asking that because I want to know how we can change it, obviously. Yeah, so we know that a large proportion of the unimmunised are people that just have kind of lost track of immunisation so 
people that have just skipped some, they've just forgotten to attend. But there, so that there's definitely those people, and I, I urge you, if you're one of those people out there that thinks that you know maybe you're not up to date with all your immunisations or your children aren't, then please see your GP and arrange a catch-up schedule. That can easily be done. But there are, we are seeing an increasing amount of people that um, are not immunising for personal beliefs, um, and that that is that's kind of causing a real issue because that's when we see the clustering because people with similar ideology sort of live in the same communities and that's when we see this that and it's that clustering of someone of a group of people with very low immunization rates that in something like measles which we said is highly contagious then you can see these outbreaks so very quickly you can go from one case to hundreds of people being affected certainly in the over the last five five or so years in the states every time um every time there have been outbreaks. People have been surveyed about why why they're not immunising, and the people who've responded to the survey, at least something about 80, 80 to ninety percent or so, say that it's because I don't believe in it. I don't believe in vaccines. I'm worried about the side effects and and the like. And one of the big big influences here was, of course, the now unbelievably discredited because it was totally shonky science. Um, publications of Andrew Wakefield who suggested a link between autism and uh, and uh, and measles vaccine and there has been virtually no science question that has been examined as closely as this and on as many occasions as this the original study was dodgy the guy's lost his medical license over it the journal that published it has retracted the has retracted the article uh measles vaccine doesn't cause autism and i can see some flashing lights on the board already um and uh, and i'm happy to respond to any emails that we might have uh, on this topic just two further points one is that per capita germany has had an even bigger outbreak of measles so it's not just restricted to disneyland and per capita much more than the american uh, outbreak and secondly back in the old days our teaching in microbiology was that immunity the price we pay for that is eternal vigilance that it doesn't just come once in a, a generation and then for the rest of life there's immunity. You have to be vigilant about it forevermore. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've, we've got something uh, quite exciting coming up. Uh, so I might just uh, just rapidly mention a couple of things, and that was the uh, the Closing the Gap report this week, which I thought, again, uh, highlighted the rather depressing state of uh, the lack of progress on a number of really uh, important targets for uh, the health of Australia's first peoples, um, and also the uh, the report on t- on uh, children in detention and perhaps more uh, which perhaps more spectacularly the reception of that report which was which was uh, quite i think quite unprecedented really in australia the, the degree to which um the degree to which the experts and the, the panel that put that uh, put that report together and particularly the esteemed uh, head of the uh, human rights commission Gillian triggs was targeted uh, personally uh, over that uh, over that publication um and I mean, they were accused of you know of, outrage, of outrageous partisanship, and I think they were partisan. They were uh, on the side of the children. On that note, uh, <laughs> on that note, there's an exciting event coming up, uh, presented by the Victorian AIDS Council at Hares and Hyenas this coming week, um, and we have a guest, Heath, a senior policy analyst with the Victorian AIDS Council, to talk to us a little bit about that event. Heath, tell us more. 
Hey, and thanks so much for having me on um, this morning. So this Thursday at Hares and Hyenas in Johnson Street in Fitzroy, um, we have an event on um, HIV called Future Tools for Prevention. So at the moment, um, well, I should go back a step and just say what, what the Victorian AIDS Council is um, in case people are uncertain. VAC, as we're known, um, is the oldest um, AIDS organisation in Australia. It was founded at the dawn of the epidemic in 1983 and we have a mission to end HIV through HIV, um, uh, advocating for HIV prevention strategies and supporting people who live with HIV. And one of the interesting areas uh, that's happening at the moment in HIV around the world, but particularly here in Australia and in the first world, is the developments that are happening in prevention strategies. And so for so long um, we advocated and we still advocate that condoms are the best strategy to avoid HIV through sexual transmission. But we now have a range of other strategies that are used by the community and that have a strong scientific basis uh, um, and background and indeed trials that show that they are very effective. And so that's what we're going to talk about this, this Thursday at Hares and Hyenas. Hugh, um, Miss Medic and I, many, many years back, used to work as um, AIDS line counsellor volunteers on the um, telephone counselling line. And at the time, there seemed to still be a lot of education campaigns around and, you know, HIV was still something that was talked about a lot. And we were actually having a chat in the green room about, you know, which, which of us on the panel can remember the Grim Reaper ads. Some of us only know them because they were shown them in university lectures. <laughs> I can actually remember them being on the TV. Um, but I, I guess I'm curious about uh, if there's been a change in public awareness about HIV. Is it still sort of on people's radars or do you think that that, that time has been and gone and we've sort of dropped the ball a little bit? Well, I think for so long we had um, from the start of the epidemic in 83 through until what's kind of known as the Lazarus moment in 96, 97 that was the AIDS period and in, 80, in 96 we had the availability of highly active uh, antiretroviral treatment so what happened was people went from having a, a being diagnosed and being given around two years to live to actually being able to live in many cases, a life as long as anyone else. Now, there are, of course, there are complexities in the well-being that many people living with HIV experience. But I think that that development in science meant that HIV really went from being a terminal illness to being a chronic manageable illness. Now, of course, you know, that we're talking in the first world context here and in, in Africa and other parts, it's still very much uh, a very, very serious um, illness. So I think there have been challenges um, um, of getting of ensuring that it, that it is something that stays on the radar. But I, I think it's important to remember that while we had enormous drops in um, notifications or diagnoses following the introduction of those of that treatment because it reduces people's viral load and so on and so forth. We've really struggled from 1997 to now to actually bring down HIV notifications further. So really mm. it's, it's almost been on a plateau for 15 or so, or longer than 15, almost 20 years. I mean, we have, have had slight improvements. And that's really where, where it, 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 um, you come into a discussion around new prevention strategies around um, uh, the use of undetectable viral load um, uh, and pre- pre-exposure prophylaxis as ways that, that people or, or, or as strategies that people can use to avoid transmission. 
Okay, so so the idea there is that we've we've done very well, but it's still out there. We've got more to do, and maybe the old messages aren't going to kind of get us further necessarily. That we need to we need to also be thinking about new new ideas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things with with prevention at the moment is is it is complex, and um, and the, the the ways that people go about avoiding HIV, and we're talking through sexual transmission, are complex, and they're becoming more complex because there are more options available, and pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is the use of a drug on a daily basis, an HIV drug, HIV medication by negative people to avoid um, uh, acquisition of HIV is another one of those strategies. Now, it's not approved here in Australia at the moment, but it is part of a demonstration project. Um, and, and, and one of the concerns we have at, at VAC is a lot of people in the community are wanting to use this this um, uh, form of prevention, but it's not available in Australia. So what we're kind of seeing is a lot of people who are at risk, are identifying as being at risk, are, are, are saying this is a new strategy that might stop me from getting HIV, but it's it's, it hasn't been approved by the government through the TTA. So, so really, we say that that, um, that that between Gilead, the manufacturer of this drug, and the government, that they should be coming together to work out a way how we can get this um, drug available so that people who are at risk can avoid um, um, getting HIV. So just to clarify, would that be in conjunction with using condoms? So this isn't an additional measure yeah, rather it- than an like an op- optional instead It's of? a really good question. Um, so, yes, it is. We, we advocate that this is used with condoms. Um, um, however, it's important to understand with PrEP that uh, condom use, and, and we've got to be careful about how this is understood, but condom use is incidental to PrEP's effectiveness. So PrEP is a drug... Uh, that actually blocks the virus from entering into the body's cells. So whether you use condoms or not, con- I mean, condoms are very important and we encourage ongoing use of condoms, but it, it is seen at a policy level as something that can be used by people who, for whatever reason, cannot use condoms. Um, and we don't make judgments about that. It's just that's always been part of the epidemic throughout the world. Um, so, yes, we encourage condom use, but we acknowledge that its availability... Uh, or it should be made available for people who identify as not using condoms. And Heath, who, uh, for who might PrEP be, be an attractive option? Yeah, again, that's another really good question. Um, uh, I mean, uh, 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 an initial demographic is serodiscordant couples, so um, people were, uh, in a relationship where one couple is, uh, or one partner is HIV positive and the other partner is HIV negative and they want to avoid uh, the risk of transmission. It, it, it's a, a very obvious um, demographic. Um, of course, you've got um, uh, other you know, young people or other people who are um, not in relationships who um, uh, cannot use condoms. I mean, I, it, it's a really varied question. A, a, another interesting target group is um, men, a more mature men who have um, erectile dysfunction and who struggle to use um, condoms for enjoyment and for pleasure um, and don't um, because that's just what happens and perhaps that's another demographic. So I think the demonstration project that's happening in, in Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria is um, uh, will look at some of those those issues. And I, I can't, we don't really know with certainty all the demographics that that'll be sure. um, appropriate for prep. Or, um, but that's something that's still in in in, um, in our learnings. 
Now, I'm sure all of this stuff is going to be discussed at the forum on Thursday night, so I don't want to ask all the questions because (laughs) I'm sure you're going to cover this in a lot more detail on Thursday night. But I'm just curious, and I don't know if you can answer this or not, but why there's the hesitation in Australia to provide this drug. Is there a fear that if people have access to the drug that condom use will go down, or is it much more simple and, and much more about just funding of the drug and availability? Do you have any sense of why it's not available? So just on that issue, of um, the fear and will, will condom use go down, we, we, we don't know whether um, this drug will change sexual behaviours of people. That's still something that's been ascertained through demonstration projects like the one we have here in Australia um, and other projects happening around the world. So um, that's something we can't answer and I think in time we will be able to answer that question with when the results of these projects um, are made available. It is expensive, um, to answer your other question, um, and that is, um, again, this goes into a whole other discussion around patenting and pharmaceutical companies owning rights over drugs and for certain periods of time and then generics become available. So at the moment, um, um, uh, it's very expensive to get in Australia off-label, but people are importing it already in Australia, and so that hints at the fact that we need to start providing support for people who are going to use it to ensure they use it properly and safely. And I think it also says that that's enough demand in the community to warrant the government seriously looking at this and somehow making it available. Now, whether they drag the pharmaceutical manufacturer in and say, we want you to drop your price on this because there's a huge public benefit in doing it and they can do that, um, and why they're not doing that if they're not, and it seems they're not, um, that's a really uh, another whole question to mm-hmm. ask, an ethical question. <laughs> um, but, um, but there are costs around the availability of this, and I also think... Um, a, a, I think there's a huge issue around, I guess from a medical um, perspective, around prescribing people who actually aren't sick medication. I think that's another another issue that the medical um, uh, profession has to kind of grapple with because it's an, an odd one. I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not in the medical area, but it seems to be an issue that, that medical science is discussing. Well, given that we just talked about measles, where, in fact, vaccination is, for even children, the paradigm is to vaccinate the healthy child in order to prevent... I mean, there's a medical model that uh, would go against that. Mm. That is that healthy people are given something Mm. in the paradigm of preventing. Yep, yep. So Treatment is prevention. So the other idea is malaria prophylaxis. And, um, and I think part of the reluctance and the reason that we're not there yet at kind of prep, uh, widespread prep use is, uh, is that uh, just like in malaria uh, prophylaxis, we're not 100% sure yet on who really should be using prep. Mm. And we're, we're on the way there. And there's no doubt in my mind that fairly that, you know, in the reasonably uh, 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 Close future, um, we'll um, you know prep will be part of kind of the suite uh, to use a ridiculous political word that people are, are using at the moment of uh, you know of things that we're using to to stop HIV. Um, but uh, but I think that like the implementation project that you're doing at the moment and and uh, other trials that have happened around the world, people are trying to work out who who should who should use this drug um, and how we should how we should use it. But I think it's, as we say, that the fact that people are using it out there and importing it and actually paying for it in Australia, which is around $800 a month, Mm. indicates that people are identifying themselves at risk and they're actually electing to use this, which um, really, as a pattern of conduct in the community, shows that the government should be seriously looking at this. I just want to make the point, though, that we do say, and I reiterate this point, that condoms remain the first-line defence against um, HIV um, for people who belong to high-prevalence communities. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.
3 Triple R. People may have seen uh, some recent reports about four young doctors who've died suddenly in Victoria uh, over the last... Um suddenly and tragically really over the last uh, few months um, been highlighted in a, an article in The Age and certainly sparked a number of very interesting articles um, in the media and a lot of locations really. Now uh, we don't, uh, the coroner's had nothing to say on this, uh, on these deaths yet and the families haven't either so we're not going to go into uh, into any descriptions of what may or may not have happened uh, to these four, but certainly the discussion around uh, around it has been um, largely about um, about uh, increased uh, suicides in doctors and um, and around um, around stress and distress uh, amongst uh, young doctors in particular. And a lot of the themes I think that we're going to talk about uh, now will be of universal interest to um, and will apply to other healthcare professions um, and probably other professions as well. Um, but certainly the discussion's largely been about uh, about doctors. And I really... Uh, my interest uh, was piqued by um, a couple of contributions, um, sort of a few contributions, um, one in one on Crokey, uh, Crikey's Health Blog by Kimberly, by Dr Kimberly Ivory from uh, University of Sydney uh, called A Call for Medicine to Stop Devouring Its Young. Um, also uh, an article by Dr Ranjana Struvastava um, in, um, and I'm sorry Ranjana if I've, spe- if I've uh, said, if I've pronounced your name incorrectly, um, that was in The Guardian over the last couple of days and the last one was uh, by Dr Pranay uh, Sinha uh, Why Do Doctors Commit Suicide um, which was in the New York Times late last year, um, largely focusing around a, a similar kind of um, uh, uh, outbreak of, uh, of uh, uh, dying young doctors in um, in the US, and a few themes came up through these articles that that I thought um, the, the one that I thought was um, was uh, very interesting was this discussion of medical culture and this this uh, sense that there was some kind of medical culture that was um, that was putting young doctors at um, at much higher risk than the community uh, in general. We certainly the, the numbers the numbers suggest that this uh, that uh, this group of young doctors, but also doctors in general, are at higher risk and uh, are uh, completing suicide at a rate higher than the the population, the general population. And so the discussion, uh, particularly, I think I think most uh, prominent really in uh, in Kimberly uh, Ivory's article was that there was a a, um, a malignant kind of bullying culture in medicine that uh, that was somehow dangerous um, and driving you know driving doctors um, driving doctors towards uh, towards self harm and I, I felt a little bit uncomfortable about that because I think think that there are lots of elements of that of the experience of young doctors that that are. Uh, much much deeper than that and and also that it perhaps reflects something that is not as real as it once was is not as big an issue as it once was that perhaps our hospitals in particular are really trying to do what they can in this regard um and also there hasn't been that much discussion about the fact that doctors come to medicine as people and uh with the same array of problems that uh, make all people vulnerable to uh to uh, psychiatric illness and uh, including self-harm. 
Look, I think that one of the really um, important things that comes up is, um, yeah, it's exactly what you said, Hawkeye. That there, that that doctors are all people, and therefore we there is no, we're not immune to the array of of very human afflictions um, that that affect us all. But I think that the, what did come up in some of these articles is, do doctors find it difficult to seek help for? Because they're so, they find it. You know, can they can they seek help uh, amongst their own colleagues? You know, where is a safe place for for doctors to seek help? And I think that's so sad to think that there might be young doctors out there that feel like I shouldn't be suffering from from this, uh, you know, stress or distress or depression or anxiety, and I don't know where to turn to. Because, and I think that there there possibly is some of that. But it's important for all young doctors to know that there are there are um, there are systems in place to look after young doctors and I urge any if there's any young doctors out there thinking oh this rings true to me then a good starting point is see your GP I mean your GP and all doctors should have their own general practitioner um, someone that they can rely on and turn to and they will understand that they that they they can just be a patient in that setting they don't have to be their own doctor I think it's an incredibly important point about how difficult it can be for people to ask for help. And, of course, this doesn't just apply to doctors. It applies to anyone. And anyone who's had any experience with mental illness or, you know, even a a question in their mind about whether they might have mental illness or, or, or some struggles with life will know how difficult it can be to pick up the phone and make that first call to make an appointment and to say, hey, I'm struggling, I think I might need some help. It's an incredibly tough thing to do and I think that's something that is the case for everyone in our community but I think what's you know what's the interesting question here is why is it perhaps more difficult for doctors because as you said Hawkeye the rates do seem to be higher in the medical profession than for the rest of the population and I wonder if there it comes back to this issue of shame and embarrassment about colleagues knowing this personal aspect of you and what we might be able to do about that. I, I certainly think that there's, a, there's this kind of self-expectation and, and certainly probably also a culture of expectation of a degree of equanimity that, that we, uh, we, you know, we get by and um, we get by and, you know, uh, my problem might be bad but, you know, really compared to my patient is it really that bad and so I'm going to keep on struggling along and um, and I think that when this will probably ring true to most uh, to many people listening um, when these topics are discussed when they are discussed most other doctors say me too mm-hmm. that a lot of the and and we, we're not talking about we're not talking necessarily about suicidality but we're talking about being distressed about about life and about parts of work and and life and um and that the most most people say me too in fact your boss will pro- probably be thinking the same thing most bosses aren't going to you know the, this idea that the boss is going to that the I think that, that there is this sense of stigma about what my boss might think, what others might think, what, what it will mean uh, to let anyone know that I'm struggling. But, but I think that, for the most part, people actually want to help people. Yeah. I think that that raises the barriers uh, for why, if people do wish to help others, is it so difficult to reach out? And everything that's been said I agree with, but uh, there are certain words that we 
don't sort of like to use, and that's the truth of the matter, is that some people are traumatised within their profession, which is a different experience to being stressed or de-stressed or suffering or struggling. Once one's traumatised, all adaptation is gone. Now, that's not just the cultural taboo or the shame or the peer group pressure that you don't expose yourself as vulnerable. You actually disconnect from knowing what to do. That's the hallmark of trauma. And the classic uh, epidemic, and we use that word advisedly, is in the military for people who come back. And they're youngsters, you know, 18 to 24, 25. And in the States, it is unprecedented rate of suicides of Returnees. Now, logic would say, well, they're unemployed in the sense of no longer being in the military, so why on earth would they be committing suicide? It's a misunderstanding of what trauma is and what trauma does. And, and that would lead to a totally different way of trying to change this problem, wouldn't it? It's different from trying to educate people yeah. about accessing help themselves. It becomes um, a system that we need of checking in on people and actively yeah. going about that. They're two totally different things. And I think that underlines the understanding of the difference between stress and mental illness and the, the, the national policies. And we've got one here we've had on Triple R, the RUOK program, which is for the general public in the latter half of the year. But as Autonomy says, the understanding of what trauma does puts the onus on active outreach to check in because the person actually can't contact their GP or their military advisor or in hospitals, their mentor, because they are disconnected from awareness. And I think look, one of the things is we, we acknowledge that people need these avenues to, to reach out and access help, but we also need to think about prevention in the first place. And I think we still have a way to go in the medical, um, in the medical world to actively teach strategies to our medical students about looking after themselves. And I note that Craig Assad and some of the, the, uh, the faculty members of the Monash Medical School have inbuilt a mindfulness-based training program to their medical students after recognising that interns, like a large proportion of interns, I can't remember exactly how much, but it was astonishing, something like 40% of interns when they did a, a questionnaire actually recorded levels that would have them um, with a diagnosable medical uh, mental illness such as anxiety or depression, so high their levels of stress and distress that, that they actually could be diagnosed with a mental illness. And, and just teaching some mindfulness-based strategies and some self-care strategies to these medical students certainly has already gone a long way in helping to really bring down those levels of stress and distress. And so that's something that I think all medical sh schools should be doing. Absolutely. I think the one thing, though, that... The one thing that as you're training uh, as, a, as a medical student that you're not exposed to that I think is a real, really big um, source of uh, stress and distress to, uh, to young doctors uh, are the kind of corporate and institutional culture, not just the, the medical culture, if you like, the doctor-on-doctor doctor type culture, but um, a situation where you have uh, 
your sense of professional and personal security is under is under major challenge that most of our junior doctors are on these rolling one-year contracts where it feels like you're you're interviewing for your own job every every few months that most uh, that many many trainees will have had the experience of feeling that the college the the organization that uh, runs its runs our training uh, seems to make the certain decisions like they're holding a magic eight ball rather than uh, rather than by any any uh, other kind of method um, and uh, and also this this sense that sometimes there's there's just this almost gross institutional bullying that payroll feels like uh, it seems like payroll's mission is to not pay you what you deserve <laughs> and that's a you know that, that that kind of struggle to just get what your contract says you should be getting uh, is is quite demoralizing for people uh, regardless of how resilient you, you enter into the enter into the process and the other last thing I think is is something I'd call kind of the squeeze the the what it's like to work in um, in a resource constrained environment where the gulf between the quality you would like to provide, your idea of what excellent care is for your patients, uh, where that gulf, where there's a huge gulf between that and the care that you're actually able to provide. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that sense of rolling through day after day, providing something that you see as as good enough care, but certainly not excellent care. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's a real source of distress for a lot of doctors out there. Mm. And the, uh, there's one argument that's just started to be put forward because in Australia the medical curriculum has dropped from the six-year to the four-year of whether the added two years in the old system allowed young people to adapt in an apprenticeship model to accommodate this squeeze, which is the ethics and the pressure and the personal and professional demands. And an extra two years goes a long way of being mentored and apprenticed. And whether they come out as with a little bit more buffering against some of these pressures. That remains to be a research project. And so that's certainly a nice segue to, to a discussion about emotional health and, and time out uh, that we're about to enter into. First, I'd like to mention just a couple of phone numbers. Uh, so this first number is just... Uh, this first number is really a number for doctors, and it's the Victorian Doctors Health Program on 0394956011. We'll put that on the Facebook page as well. They are a wonderful organisation helping doctors out uh, with all sorts of uh, physical as well as mental mental issues, really. Um, Also, the uh, AMA Victorian Peer Support Line at 1300 853 338 and Lifeline at 13114. But remember also that your colleagues might be feeling the same thing and might also want to talk about it. Ask them, are you okay? Um, Your bosses probably are interested as well. In fact, definitely are interested and will... Um, that will want you to be well um, and also the same supports that absolutely everyone has, family, friends um, and your that- GP You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia Dr Autonomy, tell us, tell us what really matters <laughs> Time off really matters. <laughs> that's, that's the starting point Yay. for this conversation for me today. Uh, so something you're well qualified to talk about. Exactly. Now. <laughs> <laughs> and the time off is just going to keep going. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, I it's mean, not time off. Are <laughs> <laughs> oh, the parenting thing? Yeah, yeah. You're going to have a little baby that's going to be demanding more of your attention than your patients ever did. Yeah, okay. I'll retract that statement. <laughs> um, so I guess between the, the radiotherapy panellists over the last couple of months, we've been having lots of conversations about this. Um, some of us have regular sabbaticals. Uh, I've just been away for about eight months overseas. Um, we quit our jobs and went travelling for eight months and I've just got back. Um, Hawkeye is off for a big change of scene for the next couple of years overseas. Miss Medic, you're off for a three-month break from work with your partner and two kids. Malice, I know that you love New York and get there whenever you can. So I guess we've been having these conversations about the importance of time away from work, from your regular routines and habits uh, and your sort of familiar environment. And it's been interesting to just hear how common it is amongst all of us, I guess. So there's a range of things that I guess I I got from from my eight months off and from that time away. Um, But rather than talk about my personal experience, which, you know, I am happy to do for hours, uh, (laughs) but in the interest of something a little bit more evidence-based, I've been looking up a few articles about the importance of um, de-stressing and time away and change. And there was one in particular that has come out uh, this year, actually, um, in a journal called Emotion that I thought I'd start the conversation with. So this article, I, I came across it because there was a very short news piece about it, and they asked the question, which positive emotion do you think is most closely associated with health, physical health? So I'm going to put it to the panel. What are the first things that come to mind as a positive emotion that might be associated with health? Joy. Mm. Joy. I was going to say yep. joy. You're going to say joy as well? Contentedness. This feels like a trick question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, autonomy wouldn't trick us. I think she's straight up the line, yeah. Thanks, Thanks Malice. <laughs> um, all of those things, joy and, and contentedness, um, they were also things that were looked at in this study. But the answer that they came up with that's most closely associated with health, with health is the positive emotion of awe. Which I think is a really fascinating one. And there's a range of ways that you could define awe. They talk about it in this paper as the sort of curiosity that you have about life um, and that desire to explore the world. And it can come from travel. It can come from a walk through nature. It can come through finding yourself lost in a beautiful piece of music or a piece of art. But it's, it's this sense of awe that was most closely related to physical health in this particular paper. What about gratitude? Did gratitude come up? Because that's something that's sort of... <laughs> You know, people are using their grateful journals or their gratitude journals. You know, that's sort of a it's a um, it's a mindset that is very positively linked to good health as well. Yeah, I, I think that's a lovely um, hypothesis. They didn't talk about gratitude here, but I should tell you a tiny bit about the study because it was a very sort of narrow study. Uh, but basically, the the authors um, Stella is the first author, Stella at L. If you want to look it up in the journal Emotion, um, they said for a long time we've known that negative Negative emotions can be associated with stress and with um, poor health. And so, you know, they cite a range of studies, which I won't go into 
now, but negative emotions have been shown to re- reliably predict things like a risk of mortality and heart disease and cancer. So, so we kind of know, and there's ongoing research about stress and negative emotions and poor physical health, but they said not that many people are looking into the influence of positive emotions and positive physical health, you know, benefits to physical health. And so that's what they started with. And the way that they hypothesised a link between your emotional state and health is based on a trajectory to do with inflammatory markers. So they talk about interleukin-6. I'm not going to go into the specifics of all of this, but basically... Our bodies have acute inflammation all the time around illness and that's a really good thing. But chronic and long-standing inflammation in our bodies that's not related to a particular illness and there's not a reason for can have negative impacts on health. And so they were looking at links between inflammatory markers and and positive health states. Uh, And as I said, awe was the one that was most closely related to lower levels of these inflammatory markers and therefore positive health. So... I guess the caveat is this is a very narrow study and it's a very uh, small way, you know, narrow way of looking at possible implications of mental state on health. But it's a beautiful starting point, I think, and it's a beautiful flip from the focus on negative emotions and poor health to actually what we might be trying to seek out in life to promote well-being. Isn't isn't awe an interesting idea in the sense that you can't experience awe unless you've got a sense of something bigger? Um, and it, and it, whether or not that's uh, you know spiritual or or secular or religious or whatever you'd like, um, whether or not you it's got something to do with your uh, concept of kind of your relationship with all the other people around uh, in your in your community, your country, the world. Um, it it encompasses all of that. I think gratitude's part of awe, mm-hmm. if you like. Um, uh, just to with Miss Medic's question earlier, and that um, that. Uh, th- that's that's the thing about awe. It really it's a it's an emotion that places you in a context. Um. It, it's also very interesting the young generation that have taken on the cliche of awe. That's awesome and awe, <laughs> uh, which has got this very deep meaning, and it is something to do with something much greater. And it, it has got a religious and spiritual background, as indeed the word holiday. That actually comes from the old English of holy days. And whatever religion you take, there are prescribed days which are for, in the religious sense, going away from your routine. And the awesomeness of those days is way beyond the everyday life of experience, whether it's Christmas with uh, celebration of uh, the historical events in in, uh, Ramadan in the Islamic religion, in the Jewish religion, there's uh, also a number of like Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Or Grand days. Final Day, for instance. Now, <laughs> we come into, and indeed, now we come to secular holidays and it has got almost a religious quality and the, the great day was when uh, Australia won the um, America's Cup and our Prime Minister said, OK, everyone, let's get pissed, tell your boss you're having a sickie and we'll have a holiday, a holy day. And so, I mean, there Around is a, a, a secular <laughs> secular worshipping of these sporting heroes along the lines of they're awesome 
and they get the money for it. I mean, you know, Buddy gets ten million bucks. Uh, Buddy's a guy, by the way. Uh, autonomy. You've been away. <laughs> now, oh, it's been such get, a joy to be away. Get, get over him. He's gone. Yeah. See you later. Anyway, but he, for some of us, is awesome. Also. <laughs> so it seems like this is it ties in beautifully. Autonomy that holidays or taking a break from life and really does sort of set you up to perfectly cultivate this sense of awe mm. and this sense of life being something bigger and greater and seeing yes. your life as one of plenty rather than look, focusing on all the nitty-gritty day-to-day things that annoy us. So it sounds like it's a perfect thing to cultivate these positive emotions that are good for health. Absolutely. And I'm sure being away for eight months is a really easy way <laughs> to have new experiences and um, you know set yourself up for experiences that you are likely to feel in awe of. But in the study, they also talked about things like there'd been past studies where someone had just watched a movie that was amusing and that had brought their inflammatory markers down for that two-hour period. So it can also be a daily reminder to, to get out of your comfort zone maybe and, and get out of your normal routines and just try something a bit new and a bit different with that aim. And right. he, this is where the saying, God is in the detail and you can have all every moment in your daily life, yes. Mm. Well, like uh, Autonomy said, I'm actually uh, heading off overseas. Uh, we're having a leadership spill here at Radiotherapy. Um, so so if I, if I annoy you, that's good news for you. Um, and in any case, I'll be back uh, in a couple of years. Uh, my trip, I think, is going to be awesome. Uh, we'll see you back at Radiotherapy next week. We'll miss you, Hawkeye. Make sure you call in from time to time. We wish I will. you the very best experiences, yeah. <laughs> this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.